If you're listening to this, you probably already know the bad news. The planet is warming up really fast because we humans are burning fossil fuels. Pretty much all the oil and gas we use today comes from microscopic algae and plankton that died and settled on the seafloor during the Jurassic period. Add a little heat, pressure, and 100 million years or so, and voila, petroleum. But when we burn it, we're releasing all the CO2 these microscopic organisms stored in their bodies 100 million years ago. You know this. It's like mining the products of photosynthesis from millennia past. Now, all that CO2 and other greenhouse gases we produce from burning those fossil fuels are wrapping the earth in an ever-thickening blanket. The more CO2 we release, the more heat from the sun is kept from escaping to the atmosphere. Still, we have to admit, the petroleum age has been a great ride. Modern economies are pretty much all built on the many useful products humankind has engineered using natural gas, oil, and their cousin, coal. But now, things have to change. Fortunately, it's not hopeless, but it is urgent. If you want to maintain warming lower than 1.5 degrees or, or constrain it to 2 degrees, we really need to start curbing emissions now. I'm Nancy Baselchuk, and you're listening to 63 Degrees North, an original podcast from NTNU, the Norwegian University of Science and Technology. Today, I'm going to look at climate change and what the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, says we can do about it. Anders Hammer Strömmen, a professor at NTNU's Industrial Ecology Program, who was one of the lead authors for the IPCC report released in April, and who you heard in the introduction, will be our guide. We'll talk about why cutting carbon emissions quickly is a little like skiing up a big mountain. How battery companies need to come clean when it comes to how they make their products. Why some version of a home office could be good for the planet and why your individual choices actually make a difference. But first, a little background. So 1.5 degrees C is what scientists say should be our target if we want to avoid major problems and upheavals from climate change. It's also what the nations of the world agreed to in 2015 at a meeting in Paris where they also agreed to take action to cut emissions. Two degrees will mean more flooding, more droughts, but it's better than where we're headed now unless we do something. The IPCC report from April that Anders was involved in was the third of three reports from a broad international group of scientists who have assessed and summarized the best research on climate change. The first report from Working Group 1 looked at the physical basis of climate change. It was released in August 2021. Bottom line, the report said that humanity was unequivocally to blame for major and unprecedented changes to the climate that were already being observed and felt. The next report from Working Group 2 looked at what climate change will actually do to the planet's ecosystems and humanity. It was released in February this year. It basically said, you can run, but you can't 
hide. That led Antonio Guterres, the UN Secretary General, to say, I've seen many scientific reports in my time, but nothing like this. Today's IPCC report is an atlas of human suffering and a damning indictment of failed climate leadership. Yep, pretty grim. But those two reports set the stage for the report we'll look at today from Working Group 3. It was published on April 4th this year and described a huge range of options that countries can enact to cut greenhouse gas emissions. That's the good part. Although it gave policymakers lots of tools, it also found that nations weren't moving fast enough. Here's Antonio Guterres again. The jury has reached a verdict, and it is damning. This report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is a litany of broken climate promises. It is a file of shame, cataloging the empty pledges that put us firmly on track towards an unlivable world. We are on a fast track to climate disaster. Major cities underwater, unprecedented heat waves, terrifying storms, widespread water shortages, the extinction of a million species of plants and animals. And this is not fiction or exaggeration. It is what science tells us will result from our current energy policies. On that cheery note, let's get down to business. First of all, why is it so urgent that we act now? What's at stake? Well, it comes down to something called net zero. Net zero is pretty much what it sounds like. It means cutting greenhouse gas emissions to as close to zero as possible. Anders explains. It's only until we reach net zero CO2 emissions that the temperature will stabilize. Because... If we think of air pollution, for example, we're used to thinking of emissions as something that, you know, during a pandemic, transport stopped, and you can see basically the air clearing and the emissions went away, right? But that's not how it is with CO2. CO2 is a very long-lived greenhouse gas, and in principle, when we take fossil carbon and combust it and put it into the atmosphere, we make a permanent uh, change to the atmospheric concentration, and it'll last for thousands of years. So the point is that how much we emit until we get to net zero determines the warming level. And it's only when we get to net zero that we actually sort of stop warming. It's not so that when we get to net zero, the warming will return to the pre-industrial level. No, no, it, it will remain at that level where we stop emitting. So barring the use of technologies that can suck CO2 out of the atmosphere, once we put CO2 into the atmosphere, we're committed. We can't put this genie back in the bottle so that's one good reason to get moving now. But Anders says there's another issue when it comes to emissions and timing. We know we have to cut emissions. And right now, if nations cut what they've pledged to cut under the Paris Agreement from 2015, global emissions will rise by 14%. But the sooner we start cutting, the easier it will be to make the cuts. Like the good Norwegian he is, Anders uses skiing as an analogy to explain why. The clear insight is the more we emit and keep going upwards, the steeper will be going downwards. So if you take a skiing analogy, which we like here in Norway, if we had done our job and stopped curbing emissions in 1990, which we already knew that global warming was an issue, you'll be going up a mountain slope and, and you could be skiing down on cross-country skis. Now... 
you basically you you can probably get up using randonnée skis with skins but you probably would need some proper alpine downhill skiing boots to be able to ski down and at 1.5 degrees you might need clubbing equipment for some of those steps so we put ourselves into a bit of a tricky situation and the gradient of our reduction is is quite steep but we also say it's doable right we do have options that can do it and that's sort of the the positive side then it can be done but then we can't keep climbing upwards we really need to get going downwards not only that it's not just norwegians on skis everyone faces the same steep slope for cutting emissions it's really as a society because it's not just one person that's going down it's everybody going downhill at the same time and and that means it needs to be done in a coordinated manner right so we don't trip each other and someone falls right because then everybody needs to also get down and that goes for all sectors but also all countries and i think the report does a good job in pointing out the importance uh, importance of getting economies in transition in developing countries also they need to be a part of that because if we can't bring them on board it, it doesn't help if norway succeeds and sweden and eu everybody needs to succeed for for the temperatures to stabilize the report that anders was part of also makes it clear that we have to start right now and get emissions down immediately the majority of the scenarios they really start curbing down now but at latest 2025 so it's not by 2025 we need to get the emissions down and we need to cut them quite quite a lot right uh, 43% for the one and a half degree warming level by 2030 and and by a quarter for 2 degrees and i think there are different trajectories that can be prescribed to take us towards different warming levels but the key inside is that it's the sum of emissions until we get there that determine the warming level we we land on now the reasons for the urgency are clear but how are we going to fix this i'm not going to go through all the different chapters from the 3675 page report but trust me there's plenty to work with what we can do though is look more closely at the chapter that anders was one of the lead authors on transport First thing, electricity. Anders says that in the nearly 10 years since the last version of this IPCC report, things have changed quite a bit when it comes to transport. If you look back at the fifth assessment report which came out in 2013, really electrification wasn't it was in there, but it was not seen as one of the major options. Now this is sort of as we say is the is the option within land transport that has the greatest potential to offer substantial mitigation transport. But it's complicated. Electric cars, check. We know we can do that. Even Ford, the American automobile manufacturer, is coming out with an electric pickup truck. That will really change the American landscape and it matters because Americans drive the most per capita of any people on the planet. According to the Federal Highway Administration, more than 21,000 kilometers per year. By contrast, Norwegians drive about 12,000 kilometers per year. But it's not just cars that we use for transport. What about trucks? Airplanes, boats? Anders says that there are low carbon options for all of these, but it's still too early for him and his co-authors to be able to look in their special IPCC crystal ball and see what the future holds. 
Is electrification going to continue to expand to other modes? Or where is the interface, if you will, there to alternative options such as hydrogen-based fuels and also sustainable biofuels? Another issue Anders and his colleagues looked at was batteries. If we're going to electrify more and more cars, we need to be thinking very carefully about how batteries are made and also where the power to charge them is coming from. The technology in terms of batteries is, is really mature now, is commercial, and we're seeing a significant ramp up. And also the costs are coming down. So really, two things we need to do for electrification of transport to really maximize its mitigation potential is that, first of all, we also need to get going with the deep decarbonization of the power sector. Because if the electricity isn't decarbonized, then, then it doesn't help. Then also, with a very fast-growing battery industry, we need to make sure that it doesn't only fulfill the job of providing the batteries for the cars or older application, but it also that we develop that sector in a sustainable manner. Because we, we don't get many shots of getting this right. Part of this relates to something called the circular economy. In the old days, we'd get raw materials, make something, and then once it reached the end of its useful life, we'd dispose of it somehow, in a landfill, burn it in an incinerator, or whatever. But now we know this has to change. In a circular economy, we share, lease, reuse, repair, recycle, all we can, for as long as we can. Anders says battery production poses challenges this way. The supply of these needs to be done sustainably and to make sure that we can recycle these battery packs and make reuse of them. So basically the circular economy related aspects needs to be taken into consideration again. And, and that needs also go into the design of the batteries and the vehicles as a whole. So it's not per se a production capacity constraint, it's rather making sure we get it done in the right way and that we don't, in the interest of speeding up mitigation efforts, cut a few corners that turns out to be costly down the road. Anders and the other IPCC authors say society already has lots of tools that can make this kind of green growth happen. The report, broadly speaking, points to that we have successfully implemented policy packages that have resulted in to reduce emissions and basically curb their growth. And these include, for example, more general tools like quotas and, and also more specific like taxes, but also regulations like building standards and also emission requirements for vehicles and energy efficiency measures, for, it be for ships or vehicles, uh, for example. There are lessons learned from those aspects which can be transferred to the battery industry and uh, set requirements related to recyclability or, broadly speaking, the amount of recycled content that should be able to be extracted from the battery packs at the end of the cycle. But here, there are potential pitfalls where battery makers and other industries can claim that they are clean, green, and part of the transition to a greener economy, when in fact, maybe they're not. This is an area where also the industries that are now saying they are a part of the green shift and the transition also should become more transparent. So I think the first thing is basically reporting schemes to get an understanding of the level of both energy material efficiency in these industries. Broadly speaking, across all industries, any, any manufacturer should basically be, be providing some insights 
so that we can actually monitor if they're taking us in the right direction or not. Uh, the claim of being green or the perception of being green should not be sufficient, right? It should actually be documented and not through, I'd say not, not through third-party consultants who do this on the side like a secret, you know, the, but it, it should be done openly out in the public. There's also an interesting section on how individuals can cut their own carbon footprints and how society can make this easier. I was surprised by this. Even though I make decisions based on climate impacts, from cutting most meat from my diet and cycling to work, I've often thought the real change has to come at the governmental level, and it does. But now, the need for change is so urgent, the IPCC report leaves no stone unturned. Here's how Anders explained it. If we all look at our our individual footprint, right, and you try to compare it with all the things that has to come about globally, it's easy to think that oh, it doesn't matter that much what I do. But if, if you now, for example, take it, think a bit about all the people that basically commute to and from work in London and New York and daily for that sake, or it'd be Tokyo, or surely everybody can't be driving their own cars. That doesn't work out, that we have realized for some time. <laughs> so we need public transport. But then, you know, uh, evidently, if, if there's not that many who's traveling, the travel demand, we don't need all that infrastructure. And there you have these concepts like teleworking, which I think is, is not the same as home office. But it's basically about facilitating that, let's say one have uh, uh, hubs of offices around the city and the ability to basically do remote work closer to your home, uh, perhaps in walking distance from the kindergarten and or your house, or at least a very short commute compared to the two-hour commute in and out of uh, London, you know, the city of London. That would save time. It would save probably, you know, be a welfare gain for many families. It will also reduce the energy demand for transport and also the need for infrastructure to do that. Society would play a part here too in restructuring work situations to reduce the need to commute so much. Anders says it doesn't have to be everybody working at home all the time either. If everybody had a teleworking one day a week, you, you know, that's one-fifth. Uh, and then you, you can start doing the numbers and it can become significant in overall also in particular in congested cities where it's difficult to develop new infrastructure. And also if you now look at the emergence of new cities in developing countries and emerging economies, you can design urban systems like that with that in mind and basically have companies who want to establish, think about these aspects and facilitate teleworking concepts and come up with you know, innovations that make that work. So bottom line? I wondered what Anders thought about the likelihood of us succeeding. He started this process of working with the IPCC report in 2019. He's looked at all the science that says how we can save ourselves from broiling to a crisp. But does that mean we can and will make the shift? We, we know the contours of how a zero emission power system looks like, how we can bring down emissions in transport and also what needs to be done in industry. So there's sort of no... Uh, we, it's not that we don't know what to do. It's rather that we need to come to agreement of getting started and, and how to do it and how to share the cost. And not the least action across all sectors, but also across all, all countries and the really importance of bringing the developing and emerging economies with us in, in this transition. Because 
we have options across all sectors that can allow us to cut emissions in half by 2030. And I think we really now just need to make the work to jointly to make that that happen. Do you still have hope? Yes, but I'm concerned because we haven't really seen the push for the changes. And and you mentioned Norway as an instance. I'm I'm sort of missing the transparent debate about the future of the oil and gas sector in Norway, right? Because that clearly needs to be discussed. It needs to be done in a manner which is not too polarized, but basically can sit down and discuss how can we ensure that we have an industry in Norway which we can generate value added and uh, generate workplaces in the future. And how do we make that emerge strongly and, and be part of the transition? Because surely if we now are serious about reaching one and a half or two degree targets, there are businesses that are going to be around which are going to be successful in that. And I think each country needs to ask itself, and, and I guess each business, how can I be part of that solution? And only if you're part of the solution to bringing the emissions down, you basically have a viable business. I'm Nancy Baselchuk, and you've been listening to 63 Degrees North, an original podcast from NTNU, the Norwegian University of Science and Technology. If you'd like to learn more about the IPCC report, check out our show notes. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.